Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Hello everybody. My name is Carmen Hofmann. I'm Secretary General of the European Association for Banking and Financial History, EABH in short. You are listening to our podcast, Finance and History, where we talk about financial topics that have been shaping our realities for long periods. My guest today is Dr. Kevin Clancy. Kevin is a numismatist and the director of the Royal Mint Museum. He is also secretary of the Royal Mint Advisory Committee on the design of coins, medals, seals, and decorations, which advises the British government and crown on the designs of coins and similar objects. Welcome, Kevin. In this episode, we will talk about a relationship that is as old as money itself, war and currency. But first, please tell our listeners a little bit about the Royal Mint and your archive. Why is it special? Good morning, Tom. Thanks very much for inviting me to uh, speak today. We have a, a museum that's a charity and a, a registered museum about the history of the Royal Mint, but also about the history of, of currency more generally. Uh, so it's about the history of an organization that's been in existence for over a thousand years and hasn't just actually made currency, hasn't made coins for the United Kingdom. In addition, it's made coins for lots and lots of other countries all over the world. So it's a collection, a physical collection of coins that we've made, also medals. And it's an archive, too, of records of the organization, what it's done, the people that have worked for it. So it's it's partly an industrial history archive. It's partly a social history uh, in relation to the people who've worked for us. It's a collection about the history of money, too, and about how it's been made. So beyond the objects, there are lots of stories that we can tell through the, the collections and the archives that we've got. That's indeed um, significant, a thousand years of um The history of money is quite a long period. Today, however, we're only going to talk about 500 years of experience with currency in Britain. A story um, you wrote a book about called Objects of War, Currency in the Time of Conflict. It might be worth mentioning probably that these last 500 years are a period of time that was shaped apart from the last or most recent 80 years or so by constant struggle and conflict between countries and religious systems. I'm quoting from your book where you say, given the frequency of war, of course, its influence over monetary affairs was by no means uniform. Rather, what has mattered is a complex of forces such as the fear of invasion, the duration of war, its cost in money and lives, if it was fought domestically or overseas, and whether its outbreak was motivated by civil unrest, conquest, or defense. Therefore, We will look at different historical instances that shape the relationship between currency and war. There is those saying that all wars are fought for money, like Socrates did, and, and you say in your introduction. But while conflict and currencies, they exist in their own spheres and they are driven by peculiar forces themselves, they have nevertheless walked the same path on many occasions, as you know better than anybody. So let's talk about this special relationship of currency and war, about a state's most necessary source of power and the peculiarities of financing war and its aftermath. Please, uh, would you like to give us a short introduction to, to this special relationship? The, the way that I accessed this subject initially was 
uh, as part of a series of talks that I was giving to the British Numismatic Society that was spanning 300 years of, of coinage reform. And I started in the 1690s with a major change to the British coinage called the Great Recoinage. My series went on to look at a, a reform that took place in the mid-18th century and then other periods of change in, in the history of currency over 300 years in Britain. And as, I, as I looked at that period, it, it struck me that occasion after occasion, a significant change seemed to be aligned to a war that Britain was fighting with another European country. And I, I, I started to look further into this. And then as I peeled away the layers, it seemed that money and, and conflict intersected in many instances. And not just in relation to, let's say, a big conflict like the First World War influencing how that would be financed and uh, what the currency arrangements would need to be, how they would need to change because of this conflict, but also in relation to design, the images that appeared on all, if I can define it as European in its remit, uh, had to put limits on it in some way or form. And as you mentioned, the, a 500-year sort of time frame as a subject, it could go back to Greek and Roman times, and it's relevant to every country in every part of the world. Each of the states uh, that I was interested in had a number of points of similarity in relation to major changes because of war, in relation to design, in relation to the way that soldiers interacted with currency when they were in battle, the way in which emergency currencies were introduced because of supply issues, and the way that the, the institutions, the banks and, and, and mints around the world, because of uh, supply chain problems with metals and uh, security issues with locations, the way that they uh, and how they made money needed to change in response to conflict. So as a starting point, a war happens and a government, a country needs to realign what it would usually do in relation to finance and government debt and the currency itself that people use. That was the starting point for me. But as I, as I say, as I look further into it, there were lots of points of contact between money and war. Isn't it like a, a sort of a bad irony to think that these periods of war very often, of course, not always, but very often are followed by periods of reform and innovation that then elevate or change the status quo in, in a significant way. And as well, I, I love it when you say that the way a war is fought depends a lot on how it is financed and how this financing has different layers. So perhaps you want to tell us a little bit more about how Did rulers in the past pay their armies, which were the innovations they came up with to do so? Or probably you have some striking examples from the past for us. I think one of the most prominent ones that immediately comes to my mind is in one of the most prominent conflicts that had significant impact on all European currencies, uh, the countries that were involved in the conflict, is the First World War. One of the elements of it that's particularly striking, uh, you know, from my perspective, I looked at the detail of the Bank of England's role and the British government at the time, which was led by a politician called Lloyd George, how everything happened so quickly. And usually when governments are thinking of changing currency arrangements, they take a long time to reflect on getting it right. In peacetime, it can take decades sometimes, many, many years of consultation. In relation to the beginning of the First World War, so we place ourselves in the summer of 1914, there is a declaration of war and, and immediately the government realizes it's a point of crisis. The reality of that and it happens in Britain and it happens in Germany, is that people are using a gold coinage. People are using a precious metal coinage. 
and uh, there are notes in circulation as well. But the, the banks, because they realised the security issues that were going to arise and the financial pressures that were uh, going to come potentially, uh, wanted to restrict the issue of gold. So when people wanted to redeem money in their accounts, the Bank of England started to give uh, notes instead of gold coins. And people realising there were tensions in the air wanted gold. They wanted the physical security of precious metal. And that led to people becoming anxious about the situation, about their own financial arrangements. There were crowds and crowds of people day after day in the Bank of England demanding their gold rather than notes. And so this is in the summer of 1914, in August. And at that time, Britain, the government decided to extend the bank holiday uh, so that they could decide what to do. And over a very limited number of days, it decided that there should be an issue of treasury notes for uh, one pound and, and 10 shillings, which was a half a pound, and that the, the country should be encouraged en masse not to use gold uh, as a way of preserving the wealth of, of the nation. These arrangements were all put in place very, very quickly. Uh, the notes were designed you know, over a weekend or so and printed on paper that was very flimsy that was usually used for postage stamps. But people accepted it. And after the bank holiday, the crisis that the government thought might unfold with people raiding the banks, as it were, or demanding their money in gold, didn't happen. The politicians involved and the economists who advised, they took the right decisions, so they took decisions to secure the financial uh, system at that point, or as, as well as they could. So Britain and many of the European countries have been on the gold standard, and, and that was suspended. From a domestic point of view, Britain left the gold standard, and gradually over the next few months and years, people stopped using sovereigns. They stopped using gold coins. So what had been a part of the British currency and many other European currencies for centuries, you know, stretching back to the uh, to the 14th century, in Britain started to come to an end and people weren't using gold in markets and on high streets and they came to accept paper currency. And the same in different arrangements and the, the, the detail of it was different. But in Germany, they did pretty well exactly the same thing. They issued emergency paper currency at the start of the First World War. The stock exchange, for example, was suspended in Britain for several months because of, again, all the uncertainties. And we have to, again, in, in 1914, it just didn't suddenly happen. This was the result of a, of a long lead-in of tension and people realised there was uh, there were issues between the, the tensions between the countries involved. So that, that's one of the, the most obvious uh, and striking examples of how government reacted very quickly and how it had an impact on the financial sector, but also on the money people used in their daily lives. Another instance of it uh, is, in, is during the Napoleonic Wars, where again, there was a run on the banks, people, very, very similar set of circumstances, demanded their gold and the Bank of England issued low-denomination banknotes in the form of one-pound banknotes. And again, they came to be accepted. And it's a period known as the restriction period in Britain because the Bank of England restricted people's access to gold. It restricted the degree to which it would redeem notes in gold. Peddling backwards in time, if we take ourselves to the 1690s, and the origins actually of the Bank of England in 1694, that was in connection with financing war, with the war against France. So major changes, major shifts in global, in European, certainly currency history, the establishment of a financial institution like the Bank of England, and the reality of the gold standard coming to an end as a result of conflict. It, it's there. War is there. It's written through the DNA of European financial and currency history. Yeah, in, indeed. I, I thought as well, when I was thinking about the part of the First World War, that this was such a massive shift with regards to money, but in general, in the social structure of so many things. Because as you said, all of a sudden, 
gold was no longer the money of choice. It was all of a sudden paper money, but much more than that, it was as well this idea of patriotism, right? That that soldiers went to war for their country and not like it was before in the years where there was a, a strong base of mercenaries going to war and as well in the fabric of how these wars were financed, that armies were paid out of, of course, debasement or um, taxes, of course, were um, a huge source of income for states. But then during the First World War, there was this idea coming up that actually the population started to contribute to war financing in a much more active way, not through taxes, but through the conversion of wartime loans into bonds. And this is a, is a massive change in, in how these endeavors were being financed. I remember another case you were making about the short-term versus the long-term borrowing you made um, in connection with the Second World War, actually. And what I read from it a little bit was you saying that one of the main reasons the Axis powers were not as powerful was that they only were relying on um, short-term borrowing in contrast to the United Kingdom. Would you like to elaborate on this a little bit? You're right about the, the financing of war and how it took on a different character in those two major conflicts in the First World War and the Second World War. And, and people were encouraged to contribute to the war effort uh, during the First World War by investing in government bonds. And the way in which government encouraged the population to do that, to be part of the war effort in that financial way, was by printing posters with very emotive and stark, sometimes, images on them of the conflict. Or there was one poster where silver coins are turned, are morphing or changing into, into bullets from one to the other, a very material and visceral image of uh, how their own individual contributions could be materially put to use during a conflict. And there are other instances where coins, the images of coins take on the form of almost huge tombstones that are defeating the enemy or they become the shields behind which soldiers are, are hiding. So money becomes a metaphor for the conflict. And government is very, very consciously using that imagery to generate an emotional response to encourage the population to be part of the war effort and invest in government bonds. In Britain, certainly, they employed advertising agencies to make sure that those messages were conveyed illustratively in an attractive way or in a very arresting way, let's say. So war finances, it takes on almost an industrial scale in a, in a way that it hadn't previously during the First World War. And the same is seen in the Second World War as well. There is a quote that the immediacy of war finance is there, but you, you pay the cost many, many years later. In Britain, those war lo loans from the First World War were made perpetual uh, some years later. And even into the time of uh, George Osborne as Chancellor, about 10 or so years ago, Britain still had debt relating to the First World War, and he paid it off, he brought it to an end because of historically low interest rates. But that legacy has been there for almost 100 years in British financial history. And, and the way in which the success on the battlefield is one way in which a war could be won, but the ability to mobilise financial institutions to help support that had a very significant impact on, on success. And there's one interpretation that uh, runs along the lines that uh, during the 18th century, Britain managed to mobilise a civil service, managed to mobilise a bureaucracy and financial institutions to help support conflicts that were taking place in Europe at the time, and consequently became, as a country, uh, financially very efficient and good at mobilising those resources in the interests of 
whatever political ambitions were in play at the time. Another point you mentioned, um, in a more crude sense, if we track back to the 16th century in the reign of Henry VIII, one way which he financed war was by debasing the silver coinage, by taking silver out of the coinage and making it, instead of containing mostly silver, it contained a much higher proportion of copper. And he generated really quite substantial sums at the time in order to finance conflicts against European partners. So that, in a, in a sense, is a, let's say, a less sophisticated way of generating income, but uh, nonetheless had the same material outcome in, in, in helping him to prosecute uh, conflict. And you can go back further. There are other instances of European countries of France during the Hundred Years' War doing exactly the same thing, debasing the coinage in order to generate finance. This ribbon of a narrative relating to war finance, it takes different forms, but translates all the way through. In the introduction to the book, I asked the historian uh, Sir Hugh Strawn to write a foreword. And one of the main observations that he made was in, re- in relation to recent conflicts in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and how actually the main protagonists in, in the Western world didn't institute special arrangements to finance those conflicts. They didn't raise taxes in, in any way that was materially connected with those wars. And that's a break in the history of how wars have been financed. Governments have been very clear in establishing links between money and uh, and war. Uh, But in those instances, or sort of proxy wars, if you like, that connection was broken. Sir Hugh Strawn wonders whether the financial crisis of 2008 had part of the seeds of that might have uh, lain in the uh, debt commitments that uh, some Western governments were taking on as a result of those other wars. And tax as well. The population did have to dip into its pocket in a way that it hadn't previously because of a war. And a classic instance of this is during the English Civil War in the 17th century, uh, where duties were placed on beer and wine and tobacco. And both sides in the conflict, Charles I and parliamentarians that he was uh, in conflict with, said that this would be a temporary measure. As everyone who has a glass of beer or or wine to this day knows, uh, those arrangements were were kept in place. The um, income tax in, in Britain, came about as a result of war with France at the end of the 18th century. And again, was probably touted as a temporary measure, but became established in the way government financed itself as business as usual. So again, I found that fascinating to unpick those narratives of our lives uh, that we take for granted and find at the core of them, the, the origin of why they came into being, a war or a conflict. I agree. I think with regard to the taxes, it's rather unlikely once they are around, they will ever go away. What I thought was very interesting is what you said about more recent proxy wars, that this was a break in the way in which these endeavors were being financed. But it isn't quite clear to me what's the new way of financing these um, endeavors if it's not through taxes or taking on more debt. I think these commitments are absorbed uh, into the existing debt that a country would be um, managing. And so their their debt burden increases, military spending increases during that period of time, and it, it just becomes part of what that particular state takes on. And it, without being, you know, skew any political controversy, but just say what the facts are, Donald Trump's administration consciously wanted to rein back these statements of fact, America's involvement in lots of other countries' affairs around the world. And that was a debt-related decision that was trying to rein in some of these commitments that America had taken on. 
yeah, rather than it being a material linkage, it, it's just there and kind of absorbed within, and you know, these tools that we've, we've discussed being introduced, like duties on uh, consumption and taxes and the idea of giving, giving funds to government through bonds in Britain. There's the, the National Savings and Investment Bank, you know, and it's people, ordinary people loaning their money to government. And so these mechanisms have sort of been built up over hundreds of years. And you end up today with a very sophisticated financial system that has these tools at its disposal rather than the need to invent them afresh. Yeah, if you look at it this way, it's basically really just moving forward in a more complex way, ways of financing that can be traced back to 12th century Venice, right? That states are um, building debt in order to uh, finance their endeavors and these things, I mean, the emergence of state debt has become like a regular tool ever since the creation of a modern central banking and banks that act as a lender of last resort. However, yeah, it's a very interesting viewpoint that, you know, exposure nowadays is is so huge and there are endeavors at, at some points to roll back on, on these exposures and on, on the amount of spending that is being done. Another thing I... I heard through what you said that I thought was very interesting thing to learn was that the United Kingdom was very successful in um, fighting wars at a certain point and in being an empire because they had these sophisticated systems of financing that were based on a strong bureaucracy, on the ability to collect taxes, on the emergence of the Bank of England in the 17th century. However, at the same time, this sophistication and their ability to finance and their power in finance led as well to them going to war more often, right? Yeah, the extent to which, which came first, if you have the resources at your disposal to be more belligerent, let's say, and have more ambition, does that stimulate a statesman to take more risks? It's an interesting question to know which came, which came first in, in which instance. And there'll be a matrix of, of, of causes, of course, behind any particular conflict. Sometimes it'll be trade, sometimes it'll be religion. But states that don't have material wealth won't take that decision in the first place. So, yeah, having substantial coffers to back up your, your saber-rattling, those two things are intimately linked. In order to fight, you need some money, that, that's for sure. So before we are going to talk about the bill that comes after the fighting and how um, war is often followed by reform, but as well by other struggles, I wanted to ask you for um, some of these very interesting cases I read about the, the practical um, difficulties of actually providing finance, money and currency during times of war. Um, I remember from your book reading about for example, the French placing actual money coins on railways for the trains not to pass again or to slow them down. Then there was this um, case of counterfeiting currency to create um, economic disorder, like which was a big mission they had started in Germany during the Second World War. As well, there were many cases of money being given to British intelligence officers like Lawrence of Arabia. Do you have like some favorite little stories in this context you would like to share with us? The one in relation to the counterfeiting of Bank of England notes in the Second World War by Germany, 
is fascinating, and, and it's been the subject of a film uh, called The Counterfeiters. It's weaponizing money in allegiance to the, the objectives of war. Britain engaged in it, lots of other combatants in the American War of Independence, in, in the story, the American Civil War, engaged in it as well. So it's it's in no way, a, no one country has a monopoly on, on this. And in Germany, they did it on a huge, huge scale, making many millions, hundreds of millions of Bank of England notes and enlisting in, in, in a team of, of people, of engravers with different skills who could who could uh, replicate Bank of England, the fiendishly complex security, anti-counterfeiting aspects of, of features of Bank of England notes. So rather than using German civilians, uh, the, uh, people were recruited from camps and uh, who were imprisoned. And so they built around them a team of experts who would, who would be good at doing this. Hitler was uh, he was he was a sponsor of this in the early in the early days, but they all ended up falling out amongst each other. They all ended up arguing. It all became very political and amongst the group itself. So this sense of being able to partly win the war, or certainly have a, a way in which you could destabilize the British economy by flooding the country with counterfeits, and that being a, a material front in the war, all uh, falls apart and in a comic and, and, and slightly disorganized way. It doesn't really uh, materially happen. Uh, so I think, I think that's a great story, and it's told beautifully and dramatically in, in the film. The other instance of this, I suppose, which is connected with it, is, I, I suppose, in, in a sense, how people's habits change when you're confronted with conflict. The idea of hoarding, the idea of keeping your money under, you know, hiding it away in a chimney stack or burying it in the ground when a, an army emerges over the hill is a reaction to conflict that I find quite engaging. You know, people would hoard coins and had them for years for ceremonial reasons and other reasons but there's an alignment between a conflict and increase in the amount of hoarding uh, that takes place for example during the english civil war there's uh, hardly any uh, hoards uh, uh, deposited uh, in the in the 10 or 20 years either side of the english civil war and then during that conflict there's a huge increase in in this in this in this habit so people in a in one way are protecting their own wherewithal their own wealth but they're also potentially hiding it from uh, combatants, uh, from either their own state, because they don't want it to be found for tax reasons, perhaps, uh, or for the people who may may end up uh, destroying their homes. So as a way of responding to conflict with the instance of what's called Operation Bernhardt in Germany, counterfeiting banknotes, that's monetizing war. But this is people we're weaponizing money. In the instance of hoarding, people are, are reacting in a very different way by concerning themselves with their self-interest rather than a state objective. There's really so many different angles uh, to the story. And shall we talk about the aftermath of war, actually, and how, how that affects currencies and money? You beautifully say that after the guns have fallen, silently returning soldiers need to be re-employed. Control over inflation often has to be re-established, and the reputation of a currency sometimes be rebuilt. There's many examples of this. For example, the U.S. independence, the British monetary regimes that were imposed in Africa and the Caribbean, the revolution of Russia. I think you mentioned the rebuilding of trust and starting to manage inflation again, like there's many famous cases that have often been discussed in financial history, like the hyperinflation of Germany, of Austria, um, in the aftermath of the big wars. However, what I thought interesting um, to talk about is in the case of the United States, for example, it was much more a case of how to 
start your own currency. So what is the first steps you do? How do you start your own independent currency? It's something that does track across the world. There are, there are instances in many parts of the world, as you've noted, where as a result of a war, for example, the American War of Independence, new arrangements have to be set in place. America, pre the American War of Independence, was a series of independent uh, states or independent colonies, let's say, and they acquire a different amalgamated identity. They become this unit, this nation, as an immediate consequence of that war. America starts to build its identity. Uh, you know, it has its declaration of independence. Uh, you know, the flag is designed. The panoply, if you like, the, the architecture of state identity has to come into play. One of the vehicles through which that is realised is is the coinage or banknotes. You know, a wonderful instance of this actually is in the aftermath of the Cold War. So we think of a, an, an espionage war uh, that ran after the Second World War and after the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, a lot of countries in the east of Europe gained their independence. And in gaining their independence, they started to rediscover these symbols of national identity, countries like Croatia and lots of the territories in that part of the world, finding a reawaking of interest in uh, what could be a national flower or a hero or an, an element of their culture. They find a motive. And so the currencies that, that emerged in that part of Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, as a story of the reawakening of uh, national identity, is a fascinating episode. There's that identity thing in the Soviet Union after the uh, revolution. There was a, a mood as part of the ideology that money wasn't necessary, that the new Soviet system could exist without it. Uh, that didn't last very long as an experiment. But some of the imagery that you then get on Soviet coins in the 1920s are of heroic figures engaged in industrial endeavours. And, and that's conveying a, an ideological message, uh, but also a message of hope for the future. And with the Irish Free State coinage, and again in the 1920s, you know, there'd been this overlordship and colonial relationship between Britain and Ireland for many hundreds of years. They have their own war of independence with Britain, and the Irish Free State is created, and, and they choose farming as a way of framing their identity. They recognise that you know, the large tracts of Ireland, the, the majority of the country at that point was an agrarian society, uh, and so it chose uh, hens and piglets and horses and, you know, the stuff of the Irish rural way of life, designed by actually a Yorkshireman, Percy Metcalf, and the coins struck in London. So there's still some continuity with the past, but they became classics of 20th century coinage design, almost Greek in their styling, but very modern in the way they were rendered. I think there's a, there's a sense of after a conflict, yes, there's rebirth. You have the legacy of debt that can go on, as I mentioned, for years and years and years later. But the sense in which countries find themselves again and choose currency, choose banknotes and coins to express that reawakening. Uh, so many instances of that in time. That's really so interesting to remember how much um, actually money is part of our identity as a nation or a group of people or even a local um, environment. I mean, there's so many cases as well when a new a ruler comes in, there's new faces being printed on the money or there's um, old monies being taken and a new print something on the side of it so to make it um, visible that that you have taken over but as well it happens sometimes with the emergence of local monies that are never a competition but you have that in London famously there is some some parts in Brixton you had I, I don't know if you still have it but there was a Brixton pound for a very long time in order to create a, 
a community money for this particular community that wanted to be independent a little bit from certain um, forces that were buying up a lot of their space, they felt. So I think that's very interesting to remember how much there is to be told from the images and from the identity that underlies our money. Before we conclude, I thought we could talk a little bit about this most recent extraordinary example of monetary reform, which is the European single currency, often described as something that came out of a legacy of peace. However, I think in the longer context, it's actually the legacy of the two big wars that had shaken the continent that created this um, political will and really a strong will to to have the continent united in, in peace, in enduring peace. And I mean, talking about the legacy of peace right now and in the situation we're in is not a 100% correct description for the, the European continent. So I wanted to ask you, how do you put this into a historical context, the creation of the European single currency? There have been instances of unified currencies in the past in, in Europe. I can think of one in Netherlands during the reign of Philip the Good in the first half of the 15th century. And he formed a currency union operated between uh, states of the region uh, where coins of a similar size circulated across the internal borders, if you like. And then there are instances of coins being stateless in a way. Uh, so I can think of the Maria Theresa Thaler originally struck in Austria, but that circulated throughout the Middle East and in areas of Africa as a trade coin. The Spanish-American dollar the same was acceptable right across the face of the globe. And the British gold sovereign as well, it was being used in countries that had no political allegiance at all to Britain. So there are two instances of prior examples of this. One with formal unions of uh, currency arrangements and others where a currency, just by the confidence that people have in it, becomes stateless, becomes a currency that everyone across borders would accept. The European single currency is slightly different again, uh, because behind it, of course, underpinning it was this sense of hope, this ambition that, you know, the conflict for hundreds and hundreds of years might be brought to an end. And by one estimation, uh, in the last 500 years, there have been about 120 conflicts or wars involving major world powers. And why not live in a world where that's not the case, where through combined activities, through social contacts across borders, through cultural exchanges, through our monetary systems, we can get closer together and find we've got more in common than we have pulling us apart. So the European single currency had that bigger ambition behind it. And this, with the core of it, uh, avoiding the hideous conflicts of the 20th century. So it's a statement of hope and that it's carried on for as long as it has is a testimony to the, the value of that ambition and the faith that the participating countries have had in it. It's an ideal. It's more than just a set of currency and financial arrangements. It's an ideal that's playing out. And it, it's the it's the other side of this. It's the other side of the equation. It's part of this legacy of hope that we discussed earlier, arising from an awful conflict that there could be a different way of living. And it continues to sustain with um, even 
countries like Britain, who hadn't been part of it, actually making some of the European coinages of other countries. So that sense of combinedness across borders is sustained in lots of different ways. We're coming back to this conclusion that, of course, money and war, they're intrinsically connected and um, money and power are equally so. But there's the identity and, and a certain set of beliefs set into this currency as much as It is set into governments or the form of organization of a society at certain times. Um, so through the lens of a 21st century historian, what's the key takeaway from the story of currency of Britain? It enriches the narrative that we tell about finance and about currency and about how that devolves its into the coins and the banknotes that we use. If we want to understand our past through financial history and currency history, there are all sorts of dimensions to it. There's an artistic dimension. There's a there's an exchange of material objects. There's a trust that underpins it. There's the materiality of making the industrial history of that subject. Uh, you know, the mints that have made our currencies over centuries. But beyond that, the sense of influence, the sense of determination that these po points of crisis, these moments of crisis have had and how they've coloured this part of our lives that we need to live. I think that's what's fascinated me. It's not a specific instance, perhaps. Although the idea of a soldier's life being saved by a coin he might have been wearing as part of his uniform is hugely emotional as an object, that an arresting image that a coin marked by a bullet has saved someone from dying. That sort of object, I think, has great attraction. But I, th I think it's a sense of an additional layer to our understanding of financial history and, and currency history. This connectedness with war and conflict provides, albeit there's, a, you know, there's this negative dimension to it, it's a reality. And I think understanding that helps us understand this history that we're interested in. That's very true. What are you going to do next? Where Where is your research headed from here? I um, have an interest in sailing personally, and I am wondering about money in the sea in a similar way. I think there's a, there's a, a thread to unpick there about how uh, coins have been used, particularly coins in a maritime setting. And there's a story there that I'm sure has been told in relation to shipwrecks and how coins are used in different settings and the designs that they carry. But that appeals to me by linking up two bits of my life, my professional life and my personal interests. So we'll see where that takes me. Okay, that, that sounds very relaxing to be there. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And uh, last question, do you have like a, a favorite uh, financial history story, like a, a favorite period, a favorite um, piece of financial history? The one that fascinates me in some ways, the beginning of the First World War, and, and then the whole uh, story around the way in which the politicians concerned got their act together. It's a dramatic period. Maybe there should be a film about this, you know, about the way in which they changed the habits of a lifetime, if you like, and just got things done. I think that's a, there was a drama attached to that, that, that intrigued me. So that's the one that stays in my mind more than any other. And, and it, I think actually the first world war, that the, you know, the currency and financial history of, of that, it, because it changed so much. It led to other ways of transacting, of, of living. It's as a line in the sand of uh, so many aspects of our lives. Uh, that conflict is there and it has this massive imprint on currency history as well. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.